Thanks. Um, if you keep that passage open, should we pray as we begin? Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word by your Holy Spirit. We pray you'd help us to have hearts that listen to you and lives that respond in faith and obedience. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. How much does truth matter? How, is it, how important is it to get your facts straight before you make a decision? When you hear about the world around you, what percentage of truth satisfies your curiosity? Do you take things at face value or do you fact check the facts? George Orwell famously wrote in his novel 1984 of the ministry of truth. The ministry of truth manufactured truths that served the party's ends. So they destroyed any inconvenient truths down memory holes in the, in the bottomless basement underneath the building. In Orwell's dystopian future, truth was something that couldn't be trusted. And I wonder if we're ever conscious of having a slightly uneasy relationship with truth. In a world of social media and mainstream media and fact-checkers and conspiracy theorists, can we ever be sure of what's real and what's not? Well, closer to home and, and actually much more importantly, can we know the truth about the relationships in our lives, really truly knowing the people around us? And most critically of all, can we know the truth about God? Is it possible to be confident about a relationship with a supreme being? Can we really know the truth about a bigger reality that we cannot see? Or are we actually on our own, searching for pinpricks of light in an otherwise dark universe? Well, Jesus famously said, I am the light of the world. And he spoke those extraordinary truths both to confront us and convince us about truth. And so this morning, if you're here this today and you're still investigating the Christian faith, still not sure about it, Jesus would have you know that you really can be sure of the truth. You can get your facts straight before making a decision. And if we're Christians and we believe, but sometimes we're just thinking, have I really got it right? Am I confident in my own faith, but I find it so hard to convince others that these things are true? Well, Jesus says that we can become more and more convinced ourselves, and we can be confident convincers of others. In John chapter 8, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's there for the festival of tabernacles, which began back in chapter 7. And he's been teaching the crowds. The crowds don't know what to make of his teaching. But the Pharisees do. They're flabbergasted by it and they decide that he needs to be arrested. So they order his arrest. The operation fails. The temple guards are enthralled by Jesus. And even one of the Pharisees says, hey, let's not be too hasty. Let's listen. Let's give him a hearing. Let's find out what he's saying and what he's doing. But the majority of the Pharisees, they pour scorn on that idea. But that idea wins through in the end. Because as we pick up the story in verse 12, Jesus keeps on speaking and the Pharisees can't help but listen to him. Jesus will not bury the truth down a memory hole in a bottomless basement. He brings it out into the light. And that brings us to the first of two lessons this morning. Jesus' testimony about his divine identity is true. Jesus' testimony about his divine identity is true. Verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Now, it, I find this quite hard to believe, but it was all the way back in 2004 when Jose Mourinho famously said at his first Chelsea press conference, please don't call me arrogant because what I am saying is true. I think I'm a special one. Now, Mourinho had just won the Champions League, so his claim to be special was backed up with some form of evidence. But here is Jesus, this traveling rabbi from Galilee, that backwater um, up in the north, making a, cl a claim, orders of magnitude, more extraordinary than Mourinho. The Festival of Tabernacles commemorated those 40 years of wilderness wandering in the desert. And uh, after rescuing the people from Egypt, God took them through the wilderness to the promised lands. And as he did that, he was with them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And as part of their festival celebrations, the Jews lit four enormous torches in the courts of the temple to remind themselves of God's presence with them in the wilderness. And perhaps Jesus looked at those four blazing torches in the dark Jerusalem night, and he was prompted to speak of himself in this way. As God was with his people in the past, so Jesus is going to be with them in the present. But actually his claim is even more extraordinary than that. Because Jesus is saying that he actually is the God who was there in the pillar of fire. He's not simply a special human being, like Jose Mourinho, depending on your opinion, but the divine light of the world. The Old Testament often speaks of God as a bringer of light. You know, famously, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Or that Christmas reading, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Or famously again in the, uh, the motto of the University of Oxford, um, up there on the screen, the Lord is my light. But Jesus deliberately ups the ante. He says, I'm not just a bringer of light. I am the light. In other words, the saviour. Consider again that University of Oxford uh, motto. Yes, the Lord's light guides us. He gives us wisdom a right way of thinking about life. Without the Lord's light, the human race would still be in the dark ages. But we read Psalm 21 earlier, didn't we? And it doesn't just say, the Lord is my light. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. So Jesus isn't simply claiming that he can lead us through life with wisdom. He's not, off, he's not even offering to be with us like that pillar of fire was with the people of God in the wilderness. He's putting all his cards on the table and saying, I am the light, the saviour of the world. Because without Jesus, we will be crushed and swallowed up by the darkness of death. But with him, we live. Perhaps we see what he means most clearly. If we go all the way back to the beginning of John's Gospel, do you remember um, chapter 1? Just why don't we just flick back there a moment, actually. Just flick back to John chapter 1, a few pages, verse 9. true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And what does that true light give? Well, just look on to verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So just come back with me to chapter 8. What does the true light give? The true light gives us the right to become God's children. It's an utterly extraordinary thing for Jesus to say. And those who hear him say it realize 
that it's extraordinary. Verse 13. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. It's not true. This is actually the first time in the whole Gospel of John that the Pharisees as a group have spoken to Jesus. Up till now they've been muttering and listening, but now they speak. And you can't miss their incredulous tone. Who on earth do you think you are? In their mind, Jesus is making an outrageous claim with no evidence to back himself up. He has no right to say these things. Unless someone can speak in his defense, then the evidence, the testimony should be thrown out of court. But Jesus isn't thrown by their objection, and he actually raises the stakes to an even higher level. Verse 14. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. Jesus is saying he's come from heaven, and he's going to return to heaven. The Pharisees can't see it, but Jesus is God himself, fully, eternally divine. He's the word of God. And so by definition, his words are true. He actually doesn't need anyone else to back him up. And yet Jesus is no lone ranger. He's not just puffed up with self-important bravado. Um, Read on, verse 15. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true. Because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Now, Jesus isn't changing the subject from testimony to judgment, although we might first think that as we read that. He's actually pressing home the same point. See, the Pharisees, they've already made their own assessment of Jesus. They've judged him. Here he is, a mere man, standing by himself, saying extraordinary things. He can't do that. His testimony must be dismissed. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm not the one in the dock. I'm actually standing alongside my father behind the judge's bench. And so what I say, my words, are true. Jesus doesn't assess people like the Pharisees did on the outside. His light searches people to the very center of their being. And so when he speaks, whether about himself or whether about other people, his words have no trace of darkness in them. They are full of God's true light. God the Father and God the Son speak the truth together. Verse 19. Then they asked him, where is your father? See, they take Jesus' words at face value. He's just said in verse 17, the testimony of two witnesses, or literally men, is true. And maybe they're thinking, standing there thinking, okay, so you're one of those two men, where's the other one? Or maybe their question is a little bit more aggressive than that. Has your father come come down from backwater Galilee too? Is he even still alive? If he heard you say such an extraordinary thing, do you really think he's going to speak up in your defense? Jesus doesn't back down. You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. This is extraordinary. At the very center, the very geographical heart of Jewish religion, on one of the most important days of the Jewish year, Jesus says to the people of God, the most religious people of God, 
You don't know God. And no wonder the episode finishes with that threat of darkness, of them wanting to seize him hanging in the air. You see, Jesus began by confronting the Jews. Sorry, the Pharisees began by confronting Jesus over his claim to be the light of the world. But now Jesus is confronting them. Will they keep on walking in the darkness, even though they've seen the great light? Or will they try to extinguish it? Jesus' light still confronts you and me today. Every time we hear his word from the Bible, spoken by his spirit into our hearts, will we try to put him in the dock like the Pharisees did? Will we judge him and his words by human standards? Will we try to extinguish the truth? Or will we recognize that he always speaks the truth because he can do no other? He is the word of God, God incarnate, truly divine. And so his words by definition are true. We have that choice whether we're Christians already or not. Jesus' testimony about his divine identity is true. So will we accept that light? Will we submit to that light in our lives? Because if we will, then we have that promise of verse 12. We will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. But perhaps we're not wholly convinced by, by Jesus yet. Maybe we're not wholly convinced by his arguments. His, his argument doesn't quite satisfy our search for evidence. You see, he, his father may be a witness, but we can't see his father either. How can we be sure that he did come from heaven and that he's going back to heaven? Jesus might claim to be the light of the world, but why do we even need that light? Well, Jesus provides answers to those questions when he speaks again, and as we'll discover in our next lesson. So secondly, Jesus' death pr proves he's the divine saviour. Jesus' death proves he's the divine saviour. Verse 21. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Jesus already told them back in chapter 7, verse 35, that he's soon going to go to a place where they will look for him but not find him. But now he adds this ominous note, you will die in your sin. But instead of taking that warning to heart, the Pharisees focus on these enigmatic travel plans. What does he mean? Is he going to kill himself or something? Jesus, though, won't let the warning pass them by, so let's keep on at verse 23. He continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Not once, but three times Jesus says, you're going to die in your sins. You see, Jesus knows that he's going back to his father in heaven. He knows that there is no trouble for him at all because heaven is his home. That is where he belongs, in that perfect sinless reality but the pharisees don't belong there it's as if they've got their birth certificate and on their birth certificate it says citizen of the darkness they are sinners who've sought to extinguish the light of god in their lives and they face judgment and eternal death now forgive me i've got a second football illustration it's quite unusual i hope this is helpful i heard about this week uh, mark bowler a 23-year-old defender from Middlesbrough Football Club was charged this week by the FA with aggravated misconduct. What had he done? Well, apparently, an, an apparently offensive tweet, tweeted nine years ago when he was 14, since deleted, has come to light. 
And he needs to face the consequence of that aggravated misconduct. Somehow, Bola is going to have to pay for the sins of his 14-year-old self because a record has been kept and he needs to face the consequences. In a similar way, Jesus is saying that our sin, our rebellion against God, cannot be conveniently forgotten, left behind us in the past. It's not buried down a memory hole in a basement. Sin has consequences. In part, that means we continue to live in the darkness. We're separated and estranged by God, by nature. But it also means darkness is coming in the future too. The prophet um, Ezekiel put it like this, Ezekiel 18 verse 4. To everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. So the default setting for every single person, for those Pharisees and for you and me, is, is condemnation and death and darkness because of sin. But Jesus' light offers the way out. Death can be avoided if only we have faith in him. You see, he says, unless you believe in me, you will indeed die in your sin. But how can we be sure that such things are true? That is what the, the crowd wants to know. Verse 25. Who are you? They ask. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I've heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. Once again, Jesus points back to his relationship with his father. That is the subject, actually, that he began his public ministry in, uh, began his public ministry with, if you look back to chapter 5. See, he claimed equality to, with God, and the crowds didn't want to listen. They didn't understand. But now, Jesus points them to the ultimate proof of his identity, the ultimate proof of his divinity, his death on the cross. Verse 28. So, Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Jesus' opponents will soon lift him up when they hang him up on a cross. It is their plan but it is also the Father's plan which Jesus shares with him. See, the crowds think he's going to kill himself. Well, no, but he is going to willingly lay down his life. He speaks about the cross and he goes to the cross because he knows that that is his Father's plan and that is what is going to please his Father. You see, if God were like the culture that condemns a 23-year-old footballer for an ill-judged tweet when he was 14 years old, wouldn't you and I be in trouble? Wouldn't we be condemned? But Jesus did not come to dig around in the past and say, hey, look at this. Isn't this person absolutely rotten? Doesn't this person deserve to be hung out to dry and cancelled for eternity? No. When Jesus was born in the dead of night, the sky lit up with the light of God. When Jesus died in the middle of the day, the darkness covered the land. Because there was the light of the world being born into the darkness. 
And there was the light of the world hung up on the cross, being crushed by darkness, crushed by sin, so that we might not be. That is the extraordinary work of the cross. But it's actually the witness of the cross that is at Jesus' forefront of his mind at this point. You see the crowd say, verse 25, Who are you? And Jesus has already confronted them with his claim to be the divine light of the world. And it is at the cross that we can be fully convinced that that is actually totally reliably true. He says, verse 28, most literally, Then you will know that I am. The same expression as back in verse 24. If you do not believe that I am. See, they need to believe that he is the Messiah, the saviour of the world. But they mustn't simply believe that he is a human Messiah. He is the I am Messiah, the God-man, the eternal word made flesh. That language, I am, is taken from one of the highest of high points in the whole Old Testament. Do you remember earlier this year we worked through Isaiah chapters 40 to, uh, chapters 40 to 48? And in those chapters, the people of God are crying out for rescue for, from, from exile. They're facing the consequence for their sin, the darkness of exile in Babylon. And God repeatedly makes himself known to them. He says, then you will know that I am. When I bring you back from exile, then you will know that I am. Jesus is standing here in Jerusalem saying, do you want to know who I am? I am that saviour God. See, the Jews must believe. And they can believe. Because Jesus' death proves he is the divine saviour. Have you noticed um, over the last few years that there is a whole industry of reality checking, fact checking. There are some parts of life where it really does pay to get your facts straight. But of course, independent fact checkers can never give us a 100% guarantee. They can't give us a, a guarantee about a person we want to get to know. That sort of knowledge can only ever be discovered in relationship with that person. And Jesus comes to offer us that sort of truth-revealing relationship. He comes to confront us and convince us about truth. He doesn't manipulate truth like the ministry of truth in 1984. He speaks what his Father in heaven taught him. So the question for you and me today is, how are we going to respond to what Jesus says? Will we be outraged at his claims, like those people who were itching to seize him? Or will we react like those at the end of our reading, verse 30, even as he spoke, many believed in him? You see, Jesus' claims are literally out of this world. But they're gloriously and wonderfully true. If he were to stand amongst us today and audibly speak so we heard him from, with our ears, not one word of his words would be false. But we don't need him to speak audibly into our ears because he speaks to us every day through his written word, the Bible, by his Holy Spirit. He is the eternal word of God and his testimony about his divine identity is true. But in his extraordinary kindness, Jesus has given us an even greater proof of all. We don't just get to look in a book, we get to look at history. We get to look at his death on the cross and see that his death proves that he is the divine saviour. We can be convinced and we can trust that others will learn to be convinced too. As long as we keep looking to him, pointing to him, 
on the cross. So as we speak to our friends in our regular lives, as we invite people to our service next week, as we pray for the small saints and the cameo and all the other things we're seeking to do as a church, we can be convinced of verse 30. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. So let's trust and keep speaking of Jesus, the light of the world. Should we bow our heads, have a moment of quiet, and then I'll lead us in a prayer.